Good morning, everyone. My name's Trey. I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. Whew, I didn't think I was going to be nervous once I got up here. Um, well, what it was like, what had it happened, and what it's like now. Well, I got wasted. It sucked. I got sober. I got better. Meeting's open. Um, no, uh, anyway, uh, I was born in 1961, Gainesville, Georgia. Uh, grew up here in uh, Metro Atlanta over in DeKalb County. Um, a relatively good home, um, not too much chaos. Uh, did have some alcoholism in the family. Two grandfathers were both alcoholics. One died drunk, one died sober. Um, I really wasn't made aware of that, however. It was kind of a hush-hush kind of thing within the family. Um, I had my first drink or first sip of alcohol when I was in the fourth grade. I was on a plane to Colorado to go skiing with my family, and my mom gave me a sip of a, uh, a screwdriver. So it was also the first drink I knew the name of it. Also the first drink I come to enjoy. Um, but. Uh, the only thing I remember is it made me feel warm. I didn't like the way it tasted. I didn't like, ah, it's hot, but it made me feel warm. I do remember that. Um, and then the first drink I took kind of on my own, if you will, was uh, I was 12 years old, uh, graduating from uh, elementary school. We didn't have middle school. Um, I found myself off this little stage off the side of a, uh, we were had a band and dance and it was pretty cool. and. This girl pulls out a couple of little mini bottles of uh, liquor and pours them into some Coca-Cola bottles. You know, they were glass. It was the dark ages. Um, and we sipped from these uh, Coca-Cola bottles. And honestly, I don't recall feeling any effect of the alcohol. However, being very, being very insecure, I was the shortest kid in seventh grade and deathly afraid of all the girls that I had crushes on. Despite that fact, um, I threw down on the dance floor with the hottest girl in the seventh grade. Um, and uh, I don't know if it was real liquid courage or I faked it, but um, what, I, what I got was uh, attention, notoriety, and that word, acceptance. And I liked it. Um, not much of a decision there. I looked to the left, I looked to the right, and my friends were doing this. It didn't seem like a big deal. My parents drank. You know, it was legal. I mean, not for a 12-year-old, but it was legal. Um, not that big a deal. Uh, now, going on into high school, um, honestly, I, I pretty much shot away from alcohol um, early on. Um, started going to parties and stuff like that, and, and people get drunk, make the fool of themselves, puke. Um, and, and frankly, I didn't like the way, you know, beer was very readily available. I didn't like the way it tasted. It tastes like piss. So I, I stayed away from it. Um, you know, I'd go to parties and, and get beer out of the keg and pour it out and go get back in line and fill it up again. I just didn't, I didn't really care for it. Um, and as far as drugs were concerned, I kind of um, uh, uh, kind of drew a line in the sign, you know, in, in the sand. Those are illegal. I'll never do that. You know, I, I would never do that. But, um, you know, as far as, uh, you know, the drinking and, and stuff concerned, I remember people talking, one of the things that turned me off from alcohol was people saying they didn't remember what they did the night before. 
And the funny thing about it is, is I thought they were lying. I didn't realize that blackouts were real yet. Um, uh, I thought they were just saying that so they couldn't be accountable for making the fool of themselves the night before or the weekend before, you know, the high school party or whatever. Um, but when I was in the 10th grade, I started leaving school campus, okay? And uh, I'm going to start getting into my drug history, and I'm sorry if it offends you, but it's my story. I started leaving school campus and um, with some guys, and uh, this guy, Doug, would bring weed. And Doug would, uh, uh, he offered me weed one time the first time and because I had drawn that little line and sign I'm not going to do that and I didn't do it no big deal but uh, we did this constantly you know we we left campus illegally <laughs> um, as a matter of fact the driver Ray uh, Ray didn't get stoned either Ray was 15 his parents let him drive to school Ray's parents also hosted keg parties at their home fast forward about 20 years Ray did like six years in a Texas prison killed somebody Ray still drinks. It's kind of scary, but rewind back to the 1970s. And um, eventually, um, I said, pass that back here to me. And I took a couple of puffs off that joint. And I'm here to tell you that I definitively felt nothing. However, I went back to Ms. Brown's biology class, and I brought the house down. <laughs> By the, end of the, by the end of the day, half the school wanted to transfer into that biology class because it sounded like so much fun because Trey would get stoned at lunch and give Miss Brown a hard time. And the um, fact of the matter is, I didn't feel a thing. I didn't feel a thing. I faked it. I played the stoner role. And uh, again, I got attention. I got notoriety. I got acceptance. It's the key to my happiness. I got acceptance. And I liked it. And we used to use this phrase, he's cool, she's cool. And that meant you got high, you know, meaning smoke weed. Um, or you were a drinker who really didn't look down on somebody who got loaded, got, got high, got stoned. And um, so I'm in. I'm in. Now, the fact of the matter is, I still really hadn't got stoned. And I didn't really get stoned until the next year. Uh, went to a party, got stoned. It was great. But what I got, it was great because... I still had this like height issue, okay? I'm a junior in high school. I've never asked a girl out. I'm probably five foot three, you know, a buck ten maybe. And I was deathly afraid to ask girls out because all the ones I like were all taller than me, you know, and I just didn't do it. But when I got stoned, I was six feet tall and just hip slick and cool. And um, things changed, you know, got myself a girlfriend, got my first job. And uh, things turned around. Things um, or got more interesting for me. Got more fun. Um, now, late in my junior year, um, you know, I was a pretty good student all through school. Uh, my parents stayed on me with that kind of stuff. Um, and um, and I'd played a lot of sports, um, but football, my passion, outgrew me. I'm still this little guy, and um, I became a serious tennis player. At the end of my junior year, I really had some decisions to make. Um, I sent out my first college applications and I made some decisions on where I was gonna to go to school. And um, I had some opportunities at college scholarships, playing tennis at some smaller schools, but um, my dad went to UGA. Um, I'd been going to Bulldog games since I was a little kid and I got my acceptance letter from UGA. And then of course, talk amongst my class was, I call them the two Ps, pretty girls and parties. And I basically made my decision on where I was gonna to go to school based on those two things. 
and uh, that was a problem. So all I got to do my senior year is graduate, and that's all I did. Um, I got my report card a couple of days after graduation. I made four Ds, and um, I mean I only had four four classes. I left school at uh, you know 11:30 every day. Um, that's when the party should have started, but actually it started about 7 a.m. every day when a couple of guys from the football team, a couple of us from the tennis team, and a baseball player, we all loaded in the car, got stoned every single day before school. Anyway, I guess my parents looked at my report card and said, uh, you know, well, it's his senior year, I guess he's goofing off, and you know, they're going to send me off to school and spend thousands of dollars for me to go to school. Now, I know a little better today. My kid comes home with straight D's, he's going to piss in a cup for me. Uh, there's, there's no no doubt about it. But uh, anyway, um, so uh, now keep in mind, my parents don't have a clue. I don't come home drunk because I don't like alcohol. I mean, I would sip on beers and stuff like that. But, you know, I'd drop an eye visine and, you know, breath mints and stuff like that. But my parents smoke cigarettes because they, so they couldn't smell anything anyway. But um, so <laughs> shortly before I go off to school, um, I go to this party in my neighborhood. This is when the drinking started, and um, this, I was working at a hotel, and it's this annual end of the summer party, a bunch of guys, baseball, we played baseball and drank beer and smoked weed, and, and uh, this guy says, let me get you a bottle of this liquor, man, it tastes like candy, you know, and, uh, you know, with schnapps, and um, I was like, sure, so I go to this party, everybody's half-crocked already, and I'm, I'm stoned, of course, I was stoned all the time, and... Uh, and I drank this stuff, and man, it did. It tasted like candy. And I got faced. I mean, I got wasted out of my mind. And um, I had a scooter. I had to push my scooter home. You know, um, I, wanted a, I wanted a car, or I wanted this really fancy stereo for my graduation. Didn't get it. I got this damn scooter, man, you know. But anyway, um, so I pushed my scooter home, and, 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 and the last thing I remember was, um, looking in the silhouette, seeing the silhouette of my parents in my bedroom door, and um, uh, I'm lying on my back and I'm just like violently ill, and I can't move, and I'm puking all over myself. And um, you know, I, I talk to kids about this stuff a lot, and I and I tell them this was my first brush with death. Cause had my folks been there. There's a good chance I'd have choked on my own vomit and died that night, you know, like Jimi Hendrix or many other people who die that way. Um, but anyway, and as they say, didn't stop me from drinking, that's for sure. Um, so I go off at the University of Georgia and um, I learned to drink. I learned no matter how good the alcohol, the liquor was, I didn't have to drink it like that. So I wouldn't fall down and puke and all that kind of stuff. And uh, but I learned to enjoy beer. Just make sure it's ice cold. Maybe a little salty food in front of it. And I learned to enjoy some beer. And then I also started getting into a lot of other stuff. Again, immediately I gravitate toward you know the potheads, and start you know getting stoned all the time. Start blowing off classes. I mean, it was an absolute tragedy. Um, Start doing other drugs. I had this bright idea right before finals. I'd stay up all night, do some speed, and you know I'll ace the finals and 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 you know make a C in the class, and I'll be able to come back to school the next semester. And uh, it didn't happen like that at all. Not at all. 
Um, as a matter of fact, I went home for Christmas break and um, I was sweating the report card kind of because I knew, you know, they put me on academic probation, but I knew my dad wouldn't send me back. And um, my prayers were answered. I literally walked out of a final, went out into a field, got stoned and prayed for my grades to like magically be passing so I could come back to the party in Athens. <laughs> and um, I guess it was partially answered because the report card did not come. Literally get back to school. My mom drops me off. It was like a sigh. I'm back. I'm here, you know. And like two hours later, my dorm phone rings. And as my mom and the grades had come, and um, it was like two F's and a D, you know. And uh, and it wasn't good. Now I tell you about that part because I wanted to stay. I knew I had an opportunity. I wanted to stay. Um, I wanted to stay at the party. Um, so I went and I wrote above my desk. I wrote. Only get high on the weekends. <laughs> I didn't even know it. I was doing my own addiction tests. It worked. Do you believe me? <laughs> no, it didn't work at all. As a matter of fact, my friends and I would be in the dorm. Dude, what's that? <laughs> what's, that what's that on the wall? What are you talking about here? It's Monday. As they say, any day was a day to get loaded, you know. And... um well, eventually, you know, the uh, proverbial UGA butt came to the backside, and I, and I was kicked out. And um, I tried not to go home. I was afraid to face the music. Um, but Dad stopped putting money in the bank account. I couldn't get a job, didn't have a car. They didn't even take, let me take that stupid scooter to school with me. So I didn't, couldn't get to, job, to my job or a job. And so I go home, and I'm so sorry. And, of course, my dad's response was, you sure are. And uh, I heard that a lot over the years. And uh, so, um, you know, I started uh, the, the big plan. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to community college and get back to Athens. You know, but that was never going to happen. Um, started working in bars and restaurants and going to school. I, I got into a relationship and I was somewhat accountable um, because I had this girlfriend, you know, and she was going to school. And um, I did finally learn to withdraw from classes. Back in Athens, I didn't have to take all those Fs. As a matter of fact, they wouldn't have booted me out if I had withdrawn from all those classes. Um, but I was stoned at orientation, and it went right over my head that I could just go withdraw, and they'd keep taking my dad's checks, and they wouldn't have booted me out. But when I'm at community college, I learned I could withdraw from my classes. And then I also learned that if I withdrew from my classes at the very beginning of the semester, that they would write a rent check. I mean, they would write a refund check um, to the guy who wrote the tuition check. That would be Cliff White. And my name is Trey, but I'm the third Cliff, which means my driver's license says Cliff White on it. And so uh, I'd go down to the bank and I'd cash a check and I'd have more money for booze, drugs, and dates. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is I've become a liar, a cheat, and a thief. I leave my folks' house at quarter to eight in the morning they think I'm going to the community college you know I'm going to the bowling alley stone to play asteroids you know <laughs> go to a girl's house or whatever you know and um, you know I got I got locked up I got pulled over uh, drinking and driving and um, I got really lucky I looked about 16 I was still somewhat clean cut. I was about 20. I might have been about to turn 21. Um, and I had a whole lot of narcotics in my car. Packaged for individual sale. 
and they did not search my car. I would have gone away for a long time. And I'm telling you, that little 16-year-old looking kid would not have survived prison. Ain't no way I would have survived prison. But I was more worried about the guys I owed the money for, <laughs> for the drugs. But um, again, another escape from death for as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, of course, all other drugs start, you know, back in, in Athens, you know, it was acid and speed, and I don't think I really got into anything else, but, um, you know, cocaine really hit the scene. I, I eventually stopped going to school. My girlfriend dumped me. Um, you know, I'm in the nightclub business in Atlanta and bartending and serving food and stuff like that, and, you know, cocaine became my drug of choice. Uh, well, I mean, I smoked pot. I mean, that was just like breathing, Okay. Um, but I started getting into cocaine and, um, you know, I eventually started smoking cocaine, you know, actually before it was even, you know, crack fashionable. I mean, we were cooking our own cocaine and, um, you know, I, I, I used needles and, uh, I mean, I, I just became a total train wreck. Now, somehow, some way I, I convinced this girl to, uh, fall in love with me and, um, she was a great girl and I knew I was a mess. I mean, I. You know, it was always, if I got the right job, the right girl, the right apartment, the right car, I'll be okay and I'll slow down. And it just wasn't happening. And we left Atlanta. We moved down to the coast of Mississippi. And she had been a chef's apprentice. And, you know, I had a background in food and beverage. And we go down there to open a restaurant. And um, uh, the, the guy that had the money, he, he looked like a mobster. And, and I chickened out. You know, but uh, I got away from hard drugs. I, you know, I only smoked pot, you know, an ounce a day probably. Um, but I started drinking like a fish. I mean, I just, you know, and I got engaged to this girl. And, and I mean, uh, you know, I basically just, I mean, I just drank like a madman. And, you know, used to drive from Biloxi to Ocean Springs just out of my mind with this car that had a bad front end in it. It's amazing I didn't wind up in the Bay of Biloxi. I mean, it, it really, really is. And uh, and just, I mean, I can remember going to work in the morning. Um, I worked at this restaurant, and I go in, and, and, you know, I could just, you know, the bartender would be like, Bramonier last night, huh? Plus, like, well, yeah, every night, you know? And, um, you know, it just, it was horrible. And anyway, um, after we chickened out on this restaurant deal, we moved back to Atlanta, and she takes a job um, as a flight attendant and starts leaving town for three days at a time. You can imagine what I did. I got right back into hard drugs again and cocaine, and she'd come back, and all the money would be gone, and I'd be all strung out and um, super remorseful. I mean, you know, I hated myself. I had a deer rifle in my sh in my uh, closet that uh, I actually took it to my dad's house and gave it back to him because uh, I looked at it way too many times for comfort level when she was out. Of I knew she's coming back, and it was like, oh, my God, what have I done again and again and again? And you guys know the story, whether it's booze or drugs. Just hated myself. and um, I, actually, I actually broke up with her because... She only traveled like six or nine days a month. And when she was around, I could not do what I wanted to do, which was use all the time. So I get this place by myself, and I stumbled into this uh, uh, good uh, job making way too much money for a drug addict. And um, I went into my dad's office on a January the 5th. It was January 5th, 1989. 
And despite the fact that I probably made about seven, eight grand in the last five or six weeks, um, I couldn't pay my rent. So therefore, I drank, snorted, shot up, smoked it all, all of it. I weighed about 135 pounds. I weigh a lot more than that. I'm not going to tell you how much, but I weigh a lot more than that today. I was a sick young man. Well, I had to come up with something, so um, my dad had no idea how much money I was making or how much dope I was using. But, uh, um, you know, cocaine was expensive, so I'm a cocaine addict, Dad, you know. I need my rent money. You know, as far as he knew, I could do one bender, you know, one night and use all my money, you know, spend all my money on cocaine. But it wasn't like that at all. I used every every day, every day. I'm not going to do it tonight. You know, I've described this in meetings before. <coughs> Shaking my head like this the whole way. Doing my checkout at the fancy Russian restaurant, you know. Oh, I'm going to make 250 tonight. And I'm on the other, I'm on the adding machine over here, and I'm on the phone with the drug dealer over here. And my head's doing this at the same time. I'm not going to do it tonight, you know. And uh, over and over again, down to, you know, 30-something, you know, 130-something pounds. But anyway, uh, my dad uh, calls a family doctor. And the doctor says, uh, you know, your son should go to one of these meetings. I was like, what's he talking about? <laughs> and um, it happened to be a Cocaine Anonymous meeting. And uh, I figured my dad would write the rent check if I went. You know, I still got my job. I figured, you know, I, I want to stop doing cocaine. I've been wanting to stop doing cocaine for like seven years. And um, so I went to the meeting, and uh, something interesting happened there. Um, I heard a whole bunch of people that sounded just like me. And they were laughing and carrying on like we do, you know, and it was like, this is cool. These people know how to not, you know, do cocaine. It's pretty cool, you know. And they, you know, told me I never had to feel, because I did, I felt lower than well shit. I mean, I felt so bad. I, I mean, I was so sick, you know, I'd probably detox for about three days. And, trying to figure out how I was going to get enough money to pay my rent, and then I you know, crawled in my dad's office. But I said, uh, I, you know, I was late there saying, come on, come back, you know, keep coming back. You know, I was like, I, I, that's cool. Come back tomorrow night. There's another meeting. Well, i got to work tomorrow night or whatever. But, um, you know, and just, you know, just don't smoke any pot and don't drink and don't do it. What? Uh, you know, yeah, there's this phrase, and all other mind-altering substances. Okay, I'm in, I'm in. So uh, for 18 days, six hours, and about 22 minutes, I didn't use. I wasn't counting or anything. Got a little weed from my friend at work and went home. And, you know, the fact of the matter is I kind of had the power of choice back. I detoxed. I really hadn't had any compulsions for, you know, whatever, 18 days. But I got a little weed, went home, and I remember I probably stared at that joint for like an hour. I made the decision to get high. It's a Tuesday night. I was drinking by the weekend. Two weeks later, I was doing cocaine. And I hadn't been doing it for a while, so I had some money. So I went on a big old bender and lost my job within a few days. Thank God. A lot of people died doing a lot less dope than I did in those couple of months there. So uh, but anyway, I lose that job. Start bouncing around from... Uh, I, went back to, uh, I went back to the meeting. After 30 days of not doing any coke and got my 30-day chip just so I could show my dad. Bullshit. God, 
it was such bullshit. But anyway, so uh, I started bouncing around job to job. You know, one time I woke up in Panama City, like, you know, no money, gold chain. You know, then I remembered I came down with a guy from work and uh, he pulled into this hotel parking lot where I was at, you know, and I don't have any gas. So we pawned a gold chain, came back. A few weeks later, you know, I, I called uh, actually my old girlfriend and, uh, and told her, you know, that I really screwed up and I really needed some help. And we went to my parents' house and, you know, I fessed up again and started going to meetings again. Um, I didn't quite get it yet, but uh, um, I got myself 60 days that time and I went out on a Labor Day night or Sunday before Labor Day. And, bouncing in and out just for a couple of weeks and you know last time I picked up was uh I my sobriety date is I can see it's September 26 1989 so late that year I I finally learned how not to get loaded how to live without booze and drugs because man it was probably a good seven eight years where I just you know switch stop you know and um and my life turned around a 180 degrees. It was absolutely amazing. Um, the compulsion was lifted pretty quick. I think I just reached the end. I really did. Um, I wouldn't recommend it, but I did get in a relationship very early in sobriety. My first sponsor said I took my uh, was going to be my wife. Her <laughs> sobriety and my sobriety added it together and divided it by two and. He said since it was more than a year, more than one, we could date, you know. It was pretty lame, but nonetheless, um, my life got a lot better. Um, I got heavily involved. Now, um, what was really cool was um, my relapse, when I put 60 days together, like within a few days of, of, of starting over again there in, in July of that year, um, I get what my dream job. I'm still in the restaurant and the bar industry, and I get my dream job of this beautiful new nightclub opening in in, uh, in Buckhead, and it was a jazz supper club. So I had this like class to it or whatever, and um, and it was really cool. You know, I told them I started the program in January. They didn't know I had seven days or whatever. But before we opened, I, you know, uh, I went to meetings every night, and uh, you know. Uh, that fellowship had meetings every night and so but then we opened and then I had to work from like seven at night to you know five you know three to five o'clock in the morning and so now I'm gonna go to meetings on Sundays and Mondays and because I'd never been to an AA meeting well so uh, you know when my um, uh, wife 13 I mean when my I started dating my wife um, she suggested <laughs> that I go to uh, to a meet go to the Triangle Club before my shift. And, um, you know, other than my boys, that was the best thing she ever gave me, man. I went down to the Triangle Club with about 35, 40 days and uh, picked up a white chip and a 30-day 30 chip, 30 chip in the same meeting. Um, but, you know, getting a dose of, of AA before you go into the insanity of it, working at a nightclub every night, it changed everything. It really just took the compulsion away. And I was revolted by alcoholism and drug addiction when I saw it at work, you know, and I had to deal with it front lines with my employees and, you know, it was, it was crazy, but 
I got, it was almost easy. Because, I mean, I got a shot of it every night before I went into the insanity. And, um, you know, I, I still stayed real involved in, you know, the, uh, CA and, um, you know, did a lot of service. And like I said, my wife, my life turned around. And, and I got married, had a couple of babies. Um, I went back to school. Um, you know, it's amazing how good you can do in school if you just go to class. <laughs> I mean, I went to class, every single class, you know? And honestly, I didn't study that much. And, and I, was one, I was one grade from, you know, graduating with honors. Um, I thought I wanted to go into, uh, my dad had, had an accounting practice, and I thought I would do accounting. And, um, you know, I was doing a business core, and, you know, I got to the end of those two years, and I was like, and plus I'm getting further into recovery, you know, and I started thinking, you know, I don't really want to crunch numbers. And so I switched over, and I started studying um, psychology, and uh, I wound up getting my uh, psychology degree um, at 36 years old, you know. In 1997, I graduated from Georgia State with a degree in psychology. Um, then the next year, um, I, uh, I got slammed upside the head out of nowhere my wife wanted a divorce and um, and it wasn't pretty and um, the uh, the program the fellowship saved my backside because <clears throat> never sober had I ever faced so much pain ever ever never really lost a loved one you know, my great aunt I lost when I was loaded. Both my grandparents I lost them when I was loaded. Um, but I lost my family. I mean, I had the house, a couple of decent cars, two beautiful boys, lived down the street from the, my kids to school. Business is thriving. My work, my wife works part time. I mean, I had more more work than I could imagine. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I had my I had my childhood dream job. You know, I worked out of the restaurant business into tennis. I was teaching tennis full-time, something I wanted to do when I was a little kid. I mean, everything was wonderful, and out of left field, you know, this, this comes. And, and it wasn't pretty, and I can remember driving down the road to go teach tennis and face, you know, six or eight people at a time, you know, whether they were kids or adults, and just bawling my eyes out. I'm in so much pain. And I can remember praying and something coming over me and just dried right up. And um, during that period of time, I had this sponsor who had actually got me through a really hard time a, a few years earlier because I was struggling with a character defect. And uh, you know, I'll be straight with you, I wanted to cheat on my wife. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I worked through this with the sponsor, you know, and he was still my sponsor. And um, he, he worked me through and and we really got into some 11th step stuff and, and I really, uh, I came to a new relationship with my higher power. And uh, I came to understand how much my higher power loved me. And it was, uh, the evidence was all there from how I got through all those scrapes, um, how I could be driving down the road and ask for <laughs> help and all of a sudden, you know, the pain has gone away and I stopped crying. And uh, things completely changed for me and, and uh, my relationship. I had a relationship with my higher power. I had been grateful to my higher power 
for removing the compulsion to drink or use, but uh, I didn't really call on him much because um, taking away the drink and the drug allowed me to be human and go do human adult things. But I was still human in terms of being flawed and having defects. And um, so uh, things changed, things changed. And i um, really, really grateful for that. Now, a couple things happened during that period, one of which is I decided I was gonna get loaded. And uh, to this day, I define it as one of those moments where the only thing between me and that drink that night was God. <laughs> because I know where I was going, I planned it, I was just gonna go to this bar and get some you know, a beer and a Grand Marnier and I was gonna start. And I woke up the next day and I hadn't had a blackout, but I wasn't sure exactly how I got home. I was like, I remember I was gonna go. And um, you know, basically I'd probably gone home and cried myself to sleep, but I didn't get loaded. And then I started fantasizing about a drug that was starting to get popular at the time, one that really takes away all the pain. And I called somebody in the rooms that I had heard that A, this was his jug of choice, and B, he'd been through a lot. And I called him up and I said, man, I'm obsessing over this drug. And the first thing he said was, if you pick up, I'm gonna kick your ass. <laughs> and then the second thing he told me, which was really bizarre, was he said, look, you know, this is, these are hard times, man. I understand that completely. He said, but you're gonna look back on this as the greatest thing that ever happened to you to date. I was like, you are out of your freaking mind. But he was bigger than I, so I didn't use. And, um, and he was right. I got through that divorce, and, and I was okay. And uh, on a lot of levels, you know, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes. It was all about me in that marriage. I didn't know how to be a father. I mean, a husband. I think I was a pretty decent father, but I didn't know how to be a husband. I didn't know how to have a relationship. I just chased my dreams of work and career and education and, and did my thing. And, uh, and we had grown apart. And, um, and, uh, and we didn't have a lot outside of the program. We didn't have much in common. So um, I got through it. And the fact of the matter is I got through a lot of stuff. I've gotten through a lot of stuff because of what I heard in these rooms. You know, um, I, when, I, when I got to the rooms and started coming, you know, I, didn't, I did not hear that I needed to get into the book, okay, and do the steps. I didn't hear that. I really didn't. The fellowship um, helped me get sober. Um, now, I mean, I did, but let me, I, I didn't, you know, but continuing to come to meetings, what I heard was, I did this and this is the result I got from it. I, I did, uh, as a matter of fact, when I heard you need to come to this big book study so I can, or we can tell you exactly what every word in the book means, I was immediately, uh-uh. But when I heard people share what they did and the results they got, okay, then I was more susceptible. And so um, shortly after my divorce, um, I started looking again um, at some more of my character defects, and I started working with a new sponsor.
And um, this sponsor um, wasn't in that other fellowship, not in this fellowship either. But um, it's kind of hard to explain, but I knew him through a guy and this stuff, and um, and I, it was in a 12-step program. And I had a really good respect for him, and, and um, I just said, hey, you want to take me through the steps? And uh, I mean, I'd been around 12-step programs longer than he had. And um, he said, sure. And so we got a big book, and we got a 12 and 12, you know, and we did the correlating work step by step, you know, over a few-month period. And um, I discovered a whole lot more about myself, you know. Um, like going back to those first, you know, fake drunk and fake stoned experience, you know. I thought acceptance from others was the key to my happiness. And I found out that wasn't the case. But, uh, but I had a tendency to do that, um, to just follow, to be a part of. But the really cool thing about recovery is that, uh, you know, I'm good with my higher power, man. I was seeing this counselor through this divorce, and um, we were going, she was talking about, we were talking about my, my earthly father and, uh, and trying to be accepted by him. And then we got into the conversation about my heavenly father. And the concept that my God loves me no matter how bad I screw up or how low I got was just overwhelming to me. And it still is today, obviously. Um, And with that, you know, I know that anything is possible. When I accept the love of my Father in heaven, man, um, I grow. I get honest about myself. I stop making excuses. He can empower me. He empowered me not to use or drink. He can empower me not to be an asshole. He can empower me not to be self-centered. And he can get me through anything. Coming up this summer, um, my current wife, I got remarried about four years after my divorce, and uh, uh, my current wife and I went through what we refer to as the storm. And, um, you know, no details are necessary, but um, it was worse than before. It was worse circumstances than before. And the first thing that I did, you know, was start reaching out to guys in the fellowship. And I got referrals. I didn't mention this before, but what I found was is that if I come to enough meetings and I talk to enough people about my stuff, if my spot, like my first sponsor, when I went through that divorce or that first long-term sponsor, went through that divorce, he gave me a referral. He said, look, yeah, I went through a divorce, but I didn't have kids, you know? And we were, I wasn't even sober yet. And he said, I want you to go see this man. I don't want you to talk to him, and I work with that guy. And then when I went through the storm like three years ago, same thing. I started reaching out, you know, and and uh, and I got a referral to somebody who'd been through something very very similar. And I just can't tell you what ease and comfort there is from the experience of somebody else being going through what you're going through which is how this whole thing works anyway. 
You know, that first meeting I went to and I heard those people talking about their struggles, you know, with addiction, I immediately was drawn to it because I was one. I was one of them. And they taught me how to get through it and how not to use. And how to, you know, puke, how to get rid of my stuff. Early on, man, I was classic. Come into the meeting, puke about, you know, my employer or my mom or my sister or whoever wasn't acting the way I thought they should act, you know, and um, it worked. I heard down there at the Triangle Club, I heard pain shared is pain, pain shared is pain divided and that love shared is love multiplied. And man, I grabbed that thing and I used it. And I still do today. I still do today. It means so much to me that um, that people care about whether or not I use or drink. You know, another miracle, you know, when I went through that divorce, there was this nasty uh, court case a couple of, a few months later. And there was this guy involved with my ex-wife, and uh, he had been in and out of the program for many years. And we were going to this court thing. And it would have been to my advantage for this guy to crash and burn. And the strangest thing is, is I was praying for this guy to stay sober. You know, we're undergoing psychological and drug testing and all this stuff for this ugly custody battle. And the fact that this guy that I could not stand had a big old resentment for him. The fact that I didn't want the guy to get loaded says a lot about this program and what it did for me. You know, I mean, sure, there's people in the program that I don't care for, you know, but there's nobody that walks in these rooms that I want anything more for than to get sober and stay clean and sober because it freaking sucks out there. In 2000, I lost my lifelong friend of this disease. Hal and I grew up together. Played in the same sports programs. Partied together. He was a couple of years younger than me. He comes home from Wisconsin, or comes down from Wisconsin after he graduated from high school, and I've already burned out at Georgia. And uh, of course, we're partying it up before he leaves for Georgia. And I'm telling him, man, come on, study, you can do it. You know, and he lasted a little longer than I did. And uh, he came home, and um, he's actually the one that introduced me to like smoking cocaine and intravenous drug use. And he actually wound up in treatment and got sober before I ever did. And uh, he was there when my boys were born, and it was awesome. And uh, and then he went out, and he stayed out for a long time. And uh, he would call me. I finally I didn't let him know where I lived. I'd talk to him on the phone, but 
you know, I'd built a life, and you know, he called, wanted money, all this stuff. And anyway, but I run into him at a meeting one day, and he looks amazing. He's got six. He picks up a six-month chip. He no longer looks like a extra from The Walking Dead. Um, he got out of the restaurant business, and you know, he was doing a remodeling gig, and he had a beautiful motorcycle, and I mean, he just he just looked great. I was so excited. I told him, "Marlette, you got to come see the boys, man. We got to get together," and uh, and it was it was awesome. And about eight days later, I dropped my kids off from school at school at quarter to eight in the morning. I get a phone call on Monday, Monday after Mother's Day. And uh, Trey, this is Jim. Jim was house father, and Hal was gone. Broke my heart. How was my little brother? Nobody knew me better than him, and nobody knew him better than me. For two reasons, we grew up together, and we were both drug addicts and alcoholics who had seen the dark side, had seen the light. But for whatever reason, you know, Hal chose to use that night, and he died. And, uh, broke my heart. Um, I talk to kids in high schools and uh, I tell the story a lot, particularly about how, because I'm one of the lucky ones. And um, something I've come to realize is in the last few years, really 10, I have not let myself get too, too close to newcomers in these rooms. <coughs> And I know why. I moved here in 03, and yeah, I came to the rooms and um, worked my program, kept myself sober. Um, but, uh, you know, life on life's terms out there, for whatever reason, in the last year, um, I just kind of committed to coming to more meetings. Because I like the results. It makes me feel better. I deal with life on life's terms a lot better. But it wasn't until recently that I realized the reason I wasn't making myself available to newcomers was I think it was the loss of how. Because uh, I was there for him for a long time. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't going to be a sponsor. We were way too close for that. Um, but uh, it was. It was devastating to me. Never thought about using or anything. But you know, carrying his casket, speaking at his funeral, nothing worse than burying a loved one or a brother or a sister in this program. And I haven't been to a lot of funerals in the last 10 years because I haven't let myself get close enough. Went to a bunch my first 10 years in sobriety. That's something I've just kind of figured out in the last couple of weeks. But uh, in one of the meetings I go to, or a lot of them, they'll say, if anything is affecting your sobriety today, um, please share about it in a general way. And um, I'm here to do that right now. Since sinking my feet, both feet, 
particularly here at the Howe Place in the last 12 months, I'm here to tell you that my sobriety has been affected in a most positive way. I am managing some unmanageable things. Well, not really, but I'm handling, I'm dealing with lots of unmanageable things outside these rooms with some dignity, not always. And uh, I couldn't do it unless I was immersed in these rooms and the process and the mirror that I have to look in every day. One of self-reflection, responsibility, adulthood. I don't want to be an adult. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. You know, there's so, there's so few faces out there that I don't recognize. You know, it's comforting to see faces that you recognize. If you don't come on a regular basis, for me, I'm not going to be as comfortable. I'm very comfortable. I'm very grateful. I'm so grateful that you people, even though nobody in here was here when I got here at the meetings I went to, but you people taught me how to live this way. And your experience with those steps, with your sponsors, with your life on life terms out there has allowed me to get through my life on life terms out there without drinking or drugging. That is a freaking miracle. I'll close with this. We live in the United States of America. You got to be grateful for that alone. And if you're a drug addict or an alcoholic and you know the rooms, you know they exist, be grateful. Be grateful. And embrace the grace of God. Because it is by His grace that I stand here. Don't spit into the grace of God. Don't gamble with your lives. Do the work. Follow suggestions. Listen. Hang out with us. Me, I hung out long enough that I heard what worked, and I do it. Um, God bless you all. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>